Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bioweek podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. Thank you, Lee. <laughs> I'm Guy from Guy's Shop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker, and Brian Schmitz back. Hello, Brian. Good morning. Back. Good to be with you guys. Yeah. This is for everybody listening, instead of the booze filled bourbon edition, this is the Saturday morning coffee edition. Yes. We usually have mm. to, you know, slow Brian down. He, yeah. anyways, three cups in. So, and I just want to let everybody know we 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 do have a Patreon account right now at one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation to try to cover the cost of bringing this podcast. So please go to Patreon.com/slash/WoodshopLife, and we'd like to thank our newest patrons for their pledge: Andrew Brook Dobson and Mark Queeley. Thank you, and we uh, sincerely hope that you give us your support. And stay tuned to the end of the podcast to hear what we've got, hear about what we've got going on in our shops. I can't talk; I've had too much coffee. Oh my goodness! Uh, so, Hui, you've got the first question. All right. So my question is from Dave Huffman, and he says, "Gentlemen, I'm planning on replacing a cheap hollow core door that leads from my conditioned basement to my workshop garage. Any advice on material? I know." MDP, which I believe stands for medium density particle board, is flat, but edges are brittle. Can I use an MDF or plywood core and dress it up with thinner material? How should I go about this while accounting for wood movement? My joiner is limited is the limiting factor in this case. It's a bench top with only a couple of foot feet of totable bed lengths combined. So if I were to do this, I would go with some type of plywood core over MDF. And the reason is because of the gripping power or the holding power of screws. Now, if I recall, that may actually still be an issue. Guy, you can help me on this because inserting screws into plywood along the edge is still going to be somewhat problematic. Am I correct on that? Yeah, you can split the plywood. You can sure. split the plywood. Uh, so... If you were to do either a plywood or an MDF core, I just like plywood because I think it's, I don't know, I just, I like plywood more so than MDF working with it. I, I kind of prefer it. Uh, but with the plywood or MDF, I would still probably put maybe two inches on the mating side with the hinges of hardwood so that you are... Uh, screwing the screws for the hinges to the door into that hardwood. And then you can clad the rest of it with veneer. Um, and I think it would look really nice. It'd have some good weight to it. A little bit of sound deadening. I, I, I don't know. I, I guess MDF and plywood probably have about the same amount of sound deadening between the garage and the and the conditioned basement. But, uh, but I hadn't done any studies on that. Uh, I'm not really particularly a big fan of uh, MDP, which is the particle board. Uh, I just don't like the way it machines. Uh, maybe it's it, chip, it chips out a lot. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Uh, what 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 are y'all's thoughts on that? Uh, do you think he should maybe just go the whole solid wood route on this, or or what? It's probably going to be a lot cheaper to do plywood and MDF for you yeah. know a utility door. Yeah, especially if he's looking to make the door himself, which it sounds like. Um, I have hollow core doors going into my workshop from our finished basement into the workshop, which is part of our utility room. Mm -hmm. And um, what I did is I just 
it, it doesn't help with the aesthetic, but functionally, I actually just covered the workshop side of that door with plywood and mm. bolted it through to the <laughs> other side, which I guess the opposite of what he's trying to accomplish, but it gives me additional um, surface to, to hang things to. If he's oh, worried yeah, about, if he's worried about move wood movement, um, I think that's, you're only going to get that if you try to take, you know, a solid wood panel and adhere that to um, the MDF or plywood core. Yeah. Um, but with your joiner being an issue as it is, I, I doubt that's a route you're going to go. Yeah. Is it possible to just skin the entire hollow core door with some sort of quarter inch plywood panel, like a nice, you know, white oak or walnut panel, if that's what he's looking for in terms of this, I guess, is it for aesthetic or is it for strength or, you know, heft and, and noise deadening? Yeah, he does. He doesn't really say yeah. what, what his end goal is. So I don't know why he's replacing this door. I can assume for one of several reasons. First of all is the looks because mm -hmm. it might just be like a Luan door. Yeah. Um, it might be for sound. It might be for insulation. Again, he doesn't really say. If it were me, as somebody who's built doors before, yep. I would get a reciprocating saw after I pull the molding off, and I'd cut the old door out, and I'd go to Lowe's or Home Depot, and I would buy a, a steel door that's already in a frame and <laughs> yeah. pop it in and screw it in and be done with it. Yeah. I'm just being honest. Yeah. Yeah. Making a door, it, it it's work. It's not easy. Sure. I've made a bunch of six panel doors before. Um, in this case, I would not make a door out of any type of engineered material. I'd be using uh, eight quarter and four quarter poplar mm. because it's paintable and I'd want to paint it. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to make it out of solid wood, you know, it's, it's expensive to make it out of yeah, solid wood. Um, anyways, that's my take on it. I'd buy one and just replace the dang thing because it's easy. You can, you can pull out an old door and put a new door in in probably two hours. Yeah. I don't mm -hmm. know you got, if you got, have you guys ever done anything like that? Uh, I've installed, I've replaced, uh, what do you call it? Uh, other not not solid doors, but the uh, glass doors, you know, okay. the like screen the doors. Yeah, yeah, I've done yeah, that. I've I've done a bunch of that stuff over the years. I've replaced exterior doors. I've replaced sliding doors. I've replaced yeah. these kind of doors. I've replaced those kind of doors. But Just doors, are, they're not that expensive. I mean, no, with, they're not uh, three hundred bucks. I mean, if you consider how much you would spend in, if you were making a hardwood door, be more than that. Yeah, I, I know we're a woodworking podcast. We're spo I'm supposed to promote that kind of stuff to, to actually do woodworking and buy a metal door from Lowe's. However, it's going to be really expensive to do this, and it's going to be a lot of work. And it sounds like with the the bench top planer, yeah, limitation or, or joiner, it's it, that's really going to limit mm -hmm. what you can do. So, yeah. yeah, guy, when you when you made doors in the past, were you making them for your own house? Was it for a client project? Uh, for me. For you, for me, because I could never charge enough. Why did you Why did you make the doors rather than going to you know a big box store and buying them? Was there a specific use case that required making them? 
or just yes. the fun of it at the time. Yes. Um, it seems that the doors in my house, the builder was good. However, he seems like he raided scrap bins to do uh, certain things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I've got, I don't know how many different interior doors and there are three different sizes. Hmm. One of the sizes is a 32 inch. Try to find a 32 inch door at Lowe's. It's just not going to happen. You got to order it. Got it. And it's, it's, it takes forever and it's expensive. So I had to make a few doors. I also made a, I did a, a construction project in my chicken, my kitchen, my chicken. I did a construction project in my kit in my chicken. Chicken in my, in, in my in my kitchen, and I tore down some walls and replaced some stuff. But I also built uh, two small doors for the pantry. It's hard to explain, but that was the last time I've built doors. But I've replaced doors a bunch of times, and I typically buy them. It's just easier, mm -hmm. right? Right. So, um, anyways, that's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, man, we're, 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 we're back to, well, we're not back. Well, we are back because you hadn't been here for a while. So we're back to you. All right. <laughs> here we go. Question. All right. This question is from Ashton. Uh, and Ashton says, my question is I'm very new to the woodworking community. I don't have a shop or space I work in. I use all mobile equipment and I do all my work outside. I want to know what projects I can do that will help build my skills and my confidence. And here's what he's working with. I have a DeWalt DW7491RS table saw, which is a DeWalt job site table saw, a Bosch router table, a uh, benchtop craftsman joiner, a Wen spindle and belt sander combo, a DeWalt miter saw, and an Incra miter gauge to go with the uh, table saw. Um, and then secondly, uh, recommendation on blade for the table saw for all around use. Uh, he's been using Diablo blades since he's had it. So, um, so Ashton, you've got a, a great equipment set up there with the table saw, router table, bench top joiner, spindle and belt sander, and miter saw. Um, so, you know, you could start you could start small with like a small end table, um, and practice maybe a mortise and tenon joinery or um, you know, panel, panel glue up for the top. Um, there's a million and one projects that you could get started on. My, my advice as you're, as you take starting to do new projects in the interest of building skills and confidence is to do one skill at a time and don't bite off too many new techniques within one project. Um, because if you're looking to build skill and confidence, uh, one way to do the opposite is to take on too much, um, to get frustrated and to actually lose confidence and not really learn anything. So, um, I highly recommend one, one skill at a time as you go about doing that. And, you know, a, you know, a small, small end table or nightstand might be a good starting project for that guy. What do you think? I, I, I agree with just about everything you said. I, I'm a big fan of the shaker end table as a first woodworking project that isn't like a, a DIY kind of thing. It has a lot of different elements to it. First of all, it's, it's, you can do Morrison tenon joinery. Mm -hmm. 
You can do uh, panel glue-ups, like you said. Uh, there's also a drawer involved. So if you want to do dovetails or whatever you want to do as far as how the, the, the drawer construction goes. But it's a nice little project that teaches a lot of skills. Yeah. Um, and uh, I used to have woodworking classes at my, in my shop here. And that was one of the classes I did was making a shaker end table. Right. Because it, it has so much. Another good project for that is like a small wall cabinet. Yeah. I've made hundreds of those things. Um, that teaches you how to make doors and fit them. And, but it still has a lot of the same uh, things that we were talking about before. It has, you know, like mortise and tenon joinery, if you're going to do the doors that way. And none of these projects are really big in size. So it would work with what he has equipment wise. And Mm -hmm. I I think that would be very beneficial to him. I don't know how much meat I left you on the bone there. So I really like the idea of a wall cabinet. Um, Just like you said, like a single door, you could do uh, some type of face frame construction. So that way, because he doesn't have a planer, he can uh, maintain uh, or excuse me, not maintain, but use uh, uh, pre-milled lumber for face frames. And just, you know, because he has the joiner, it'll be small enough that he can get a good straight jointed edge that he doesn't have to require like a large bed or something for that joiner. So I do like the idea of the wall cap, excuse me, wall cabinet. Uh, in terms of the tools that he has, he can do a ton. And honestly, those, those two things, wall cabinet and um, shaker and table are probably going to be the best things to really build up your base and build up your confidence for a whole multitude of other tool, uh, other builds that are going to require the same level of skill. And then at that point, I think once you sort of tackle those two types of projects, your imagination can run wild in terms of the things that you can do. Yeah. uh, The thing, the thing that Brian said, I agree with, but then I don't a hundred percent agree with, um, if it's, this is your first, you know, like I said, woodworking type project, I can guarantee you it's not going to look good. <laughs> Use it as a learning experience and step yeah. back and say, okay, I did this wrong and I did yep. that wrong and I did that wrong. It's okay to make mistakes. Don't mm-hmm. beat yourself up about it. But mm-hmm. at the end, like I said, it, <laughs> it won't be perfect. But that's fine. Mm-hmm. If you want to, you can keep it so you can look at it every time you, before you start a new project and say, okay, these are all the things I screwed up. And these are the things I, I need to make sure I don't make those same mistakes twice. Right. Another good project for a lot of the stuff is, are boxes, small boxes. Yeah, small boxes, yeah. So, but anyways, that's my two cents. Yeah. All right. Do you... Do you guys have videos on your YouTube channels that feature either of the projects you described? If yep. Ashton well, wanted to does. go and mm-hmm. Guy does. Got both. Yeah. Yeah. But there okay. the the one for the shaker side table is I, I think I made a homemade jig to use dowels in that. Uh, okay. yes. I remember that, yeah. Um which is fine. And I've done two wall cabinet ones. Um, yeah. So there you so, go, Ashton. Check out yeah. check out Guy's Shop on YouTube, and yeah. you'll you'll Thanks. find a couple good good examples of videos there. Thanks for the plug, Brian. Hey, no problem. All right. So I've got the next question here. Yep. 
And this comes from Anthony Macadino. And I got to cue this up here. Sorry. Um, and Anthony says, hey, guys, love the podcast. I've learned a bunch from y'all. My question is about end grain. I'm building a cherry nightstand that has a shelf that will be 20 inches long and 17 inches wide. It's a big shelf. I'm making the shelf from solid cherry as well. The 17-inch dimension end grain will show on the left and right sides of the nightstand. I made my own cherry veneer from the stock. I have It's about a 32nd of an inch thick. That's pretty nice. And I was thinking I could edge bandage it to, to the ends. But if I do that, the glue holding the veneer will prevent the wood from moving, right? It won't prevent the wood from moving. It will just crack the yeah. veneer you put on. I was even thinking about using the banding so that the grain follows the top like a waterfall, but it doesn't solve the glue issue. Am I correct in this thinking? How can I dress up the end so that it doesn't look amateurish? Or can I just sand the end grain to a very fine grip? and or seal the end grain before finishing so that it doesn't get darker than the shelf itself. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much, Anthony. So there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah. Veneering solid wood is never a good idea, whether it's on the face grain or the end grain. Long grain, you might get away with it. Um, veneer is really meant to be used on... Uh, manufactured materials mm-hmm. however you know it, it can be done if certain certain in certain instances where that piece of wood is captured inside of another piece of wood and it's not going to really be able to, to to move at all a good example of that is like a, a drawer front yeah yeah um, anyways there's really not much you can do here yet you, you have you have a couple choices in my opinion you have a couple choices the first one is to make the shelf out of plywood and edge band it so there's some very nice looking cherry plywood out there. You can do that. Or if you want to, if you've made the veneer ready to match the rest of your cherry cabinet, just use that veneer and veneer a piece of plywood or MDF and do the edges and you're, you're in. If you want to stick with the solid wood, there, there's really no way to hide the sand grain. It sounds like it sounds like it's an open shelf on the bottom. So, if it were me, I wouldn't be, and this is where I get confused on this question. He says, should I sand the end grain to a very fine grit and or seal the grain before finishing so it doesn't get darker than the shelf itself? I, it sounds like he's going he's gonna to dye this or stain the cherry. I may be mistaken, but mm. that's the only thing that would really cause the end grain to get darker than the rest of it. Just regular, you know, the, the color change of, of cherry over time with the UV light, it's not going to make the end grain darker. That really only happens with um, dyeing stuff. On the end grain, I am a big fan of going one to two grits higher on the end grain if it's going to be yep. exposed. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm not understanding what I'm, what he's describing here. So he's got, okay, a cherry nightstand with a shelf that's 20 inches long, 17 inches wide. It's made of uh, solid cherry. Mm-hmm. Um, the 17 inch dimension has end grain. Where, where is he going to see that? Where is well, he it's, see- it's, it sounds like it's a, it's a lower shelf nested in the legs. 
Okay. So. Oh, okay. It's okay. It's a low. Oh, right, right. Because I'm I'm thinking of like a nightstand that's like encased, right? But even but if, no. even if even if, let's let's not even look at the the shelf. I mean, the top is going to have end grain. It's going to have end grain. There, there's yeah. no way around it. So, anyways. So, so I have, a, I have a question. I know this is a matter of opinion, but he he refers to like that end grain showing like that as being a almost like a mark of an amateur. Mm-mm. Do you guys view it that way? I guess I've no. never I've never thought of end grain as being something to to hide or you know as a as a sign of lesser craftsmanship. Mm-mm. No. no, no, no. Yeah, no. not 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 for solid wood. No, not at all. No, it depend. I mean, again, on tops you have end grain. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it, yeah I, I don't see it as an issue. Yeah, and if you were to veneer that end, you would encounter a cross grain situation. Oh, that would be yeah, that would be yeah. disastrous. Right. I mean, that not disastrous. Work. It just wouldn't work. <laughs> now, now, what he could do, he could do a breadboard end if you wanted to do that. If you wanted yeah. to put a breadboard end on that middle shelf. But that seems like a lot yeah. of work for, you know, for it's actually a good idea. I don't, I don't think of that. Yeah. So he could also could he could also cut it cut it long and then miter fold it. Yeah, I guess miter fold it. Start 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 the rough piece long, mm-hmm. and then miter fold it like he was going to do ca- like a case miter on the end of each shelf. Oh my god. I'm not. I'm not advocating for that. <laughs> so then he would have a waterfall for just he would, a have, shelf. he would have like a three quarter inch waterfall. Oh I mean, but uh, but the honestly, grain, the grain the grain would wrap. And, true. And true. You wouldn't see the end grain if he if he was uh, if he had an end grain allergy. And but then the end grain would be on the bottom of the shelf, right? Where you wouldn't see. But it. you wouldn't. Where you wouldn't see it. Right, yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Wow. Right. That's. I would. That's... I would. I wouldn't do that. But you know. <laughs> but I mean. I mean. <laughs> Brian, if, it would work. <laughs> if you were to do that, I, I mean, I, I would think that it would just be almost about the same amount of work as doing a breadboard end. Oh, I think it'd be a nightmare. You have to, <laughs> yeah. do, the, you have to do the edges and the front. Uh, oh my gosh, I don't even want to think about it. It hurts my brain to think about uh, it. it, it yeah, you know, you know what it is. Is I, I think people, and I'm, I'm, I may get myself in trouble here. But I think a, a lot of people overanalyze things and sure, read yeah. into so, stuff too much. And usually, the, the the first and most simplest answer is the correct answer. Mm-hmm. There's some theory behind that. I don't know. I can't remember what it's called. Um, but anyways, yeah. It, don't worry about the end grain, Anthony. Just finish the piece, sand it to a grid or two higher, and you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I actually really like the look of the burnished end grain you know when it's like really nicely polished and smooth it feels great it looks good i like it you know yeah. it's a, it's yeah. what the wood's supposed to look like yeah well so. and so often i mean when you get these these laminates and these non-wood products out there and you know they're wrapped in edge grain all the way around because it's not actually wood you know the end grain marks it as being a solid wood panel which yeah. is being is more and more rare and people people see that a lot, you know, and, and stuff they go and see at the furniture store or at IKEA or, you know, I, I had a realization this week. If I, I will die a happy man, 
if I never hear about restoration hardware or those <laughs> damn tables at the Apple store. I'm done with them. All right. I don't, I'm going to have to go to the Apple store. I don't even yeah, know, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> oh, those those stupid... I've got with their Parsons tables with the legs oh, that come up through the top. Uh, yes. Everybody wants them. But we don't do veneer at work. All we do is solid wood. And those things are right. just impossible to make right. And they're just an accident. They're just they're just waiting to explode. Right. Yep. Because we the make, gap between we make them all the time. All it, the time. Is it because the gap between the actual tabletop and the leg that pokes through it, it can't stay consistent? It's just a bad idea. Okay. They need to be veneer. They need oh. to be veneer. Yeah. Anyways, I'm gonna get, I'm getting off on a <laughs> You get off your soapbox now. You're done. All right. All right. Brian, or we we go back to Hui now. Well, I, I mean, go back we, can, to we. we can switch it up if you want. No. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. So this question's from Tom, a fellow Alabamian, uh, and actually just north of us. I'm an aspiring woodworker in Harvest, Alabama, Tornado Alley. Uh, I have a one car garage with a five by eight by six tornado bunker. Look at that wow, in the middle cool. of my floor. <laughs> if you had that, is there any way that you would reuse that space to your advantage, not just for storage, but actively like for dust collection or an extra long panel saw? Uh, P.S. Tell guy that the population here is exploding because I think maybe Alabama knows each other. <laughs> um, Tom, I don't know you, but thank you for your question. Great question. Um, so what he's got here, uh, if, if you're not familiar um, in the South, particularly in North Alabama, which is in Tennessee Valley, uh, we have a lot of tornadoes. So sometimes uh, folks will have uh, tornado bunkers that are put into their garage that go underground. And in this case, this is exactly what Tom has. And the problem with having that is that oftentimes you're slightly raised from the surface of your garage floor. So it's not the easiest to like roll tools across or, or have anything on top. Um, but at the same time, when there is a tornado, you actually do want to have access to it so that you can use it for what it's intended for. Although that should be sparingly, hopefully. Uh, my thought is I think if you put dust collection down under there, uh, like something like one of those uh, Rockler dust right things or whatnot to a specific tool, that'd be fairly easy to move out of the way when you actually have to have access that there and you could still continue to use it for storage for like dry goods and whatnot. An extra long panel saw, I would see an issue with that because now you have the problem of having to move that out of the way when you actually have to access that bunker. Mind you, shouldn't be that often, but I would actually probably err on the side more so of like using it for like a dust right dust collector or something like that for an individual tool. And then my guess is that that's probably what you're going to have, uh, Tom, like a smaller dust collection type system or individual uh, dust collection for that machine, whatever that machine may be, because you're sort of in a one car garage. So having a bigger dust collection system might be a little bit difficult guy brian what are your thoughts Do, are you guys dealing with uh with tornado bunkers at all i don't think so right yeah i don't i don't think they're much i mean we get tornadoes up here but certainly not the way you do down in alabama so mm -hmm. thankfully not 
not the same level of concern to where people are actually putting bunkers in. Clarifying question. Is he talking about putting things in the tornado bunker or is he talking about putting things putting, on top of or hanging over the that section? Well, he's talking about not just storage space, which would be which my thought would be inside the bunker. That's what itself, I that's what I read right? originally, but then everything else made me think above ground. With the extra long panel saw? Yeah. 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 I kind of thought the same thing too. And maybe he's kind of alluding to both. I don't know exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I, I would say, I would say the first, which is storage space. So my guess is that probably putting something in there. And in that case, I would probably put like a small dust, right? Dust collector. Cause that makes sense to me. Right. Yeah. So what do you, <laughs> again, what are your thoughts? <laughs> I, Brian? I'm, I'm not I'm not one for for clutter or having any more than I need in my primary workshop space. So I would say anything he isn't using on a regular basis in his shop, I'd find a way without you know filling up the the bunker because you need it in the event of a tornado. I would yeah. find a way to to move some of that down there. And if he needs to you know every couple months go down and grab the biscuit joiner because he rarely uses it then it's tucked away neatly on a shelf down there and not not occupying his primary shop space right um, yeah i i would agree with a lot of that i mean i don't i have an idea of what this bunker looks like in his floor and you're saying it usually has a raised edge around it Hui? yeah it typically does and then there's the steel door that goes over the steel door is flush with the raised bevel Our, part of it yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so i don't you know could, if i i, I wouldn't put any equipment down there as far okay. as tools i'd be wanting to use mm -hmm. because i if there is a tornado bunker in the floor of my house, it's there. It was put there for a good reason. And I want to use it for the use it was intended to, which is protecting myself and my family in the case of said tornado. That being said, I wouldn't put tools down there because it's just, it, it's just hard to get to an inaccessible long panel saw. We've got a long panel saw at work. It, it's got a 25 foot long footprint. Yeah. So, I don't know how, yeah. yeah um, anyways, I might, the, the, the extent of what I would do, since it's five by eight by six mm -hmm. on one of the short ends, I might put some shelving and store stuff down there. But that, okay. like Brian said, that would be about it. Yeah. Stuff mm -hmm. I don't use often. Mm -hmm. uh, it might be a good place to put some racking on, you know, maybe one of the long walls it's not taking up too much room, like maybe a foot or so, and use that for, for wood storage. Mm, yeah. And that's that's something else. But I, I keep it for its intended use, which is tornado. And I'd store a few items down there, but not a lot. Okay. Fair. Fair. Well. That's my take on it. Tom? I, you know, and Tom, I'm going to read this because it says here not for the podcast audience, but you know, this is this is a nice thing. He actually, Tom actually went to uh, to my sister's restaurant in Melbourne, Florida, uh, Bun Mi Saigon Baguette. It's the longest name ever for a restaurant, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
but that's what we do. <laughs> we really like long names for our Vietnamese restaurants. Um, and he said he really liked it. So shout out to my sister for, you know, having a great restaurant in Melbourne, Florida. And thank you, Tom. Um, back to you, Brian. All right. I'm going to break, I'm going to break form here. I'm back after a three month hiatus. So I'm going to just do whatever I want to here. And this is actually not a listener question, but it's a little more than what I think we can cover in the shop. And I'm going to deliver a safety public service announcement Uh for the listeners of the Woodshop Life podcast because I had an accident in my workshop uh, about three weeks ago and Uh unrelated to my my personal hiatus. But uh, I think this is a good good safety lesson for all. And I hope everybody learns a little something from my my mistakes. So let me paint, paint a picture for you here. It's Saturday night. Um, I think the playoffs might've been on. I was downstairs, um, making a little bit of sawdust. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in the shop lately and just wanted to do something. And I needed to make a few, uh, fence auxiliary fence blanks for my miter gauges. I've got a couple miter gauges that I use for 90, 90 degree cuts, uh, one for 45 and then one for odd angles. And I, I make that using about an inch and a half thick piece of ash. It's about two and a half inches uh, wide or tall when you stand it on end. And I, I route a three quarter inch groove uh, into the top of that. And I set T track into it so that I can mm-hmm. put a sliding uh, stop block in, in the fence. Cause usually I'm cutting, you know, small pieces and parts. So I'm at the router table and I do my initial pass to clear it out. And first uh, problem is I'm using not the ideal bit and I'm using a a down cut spiral bit in my router table mm-hmm. and I did it in in a couple different passes but it was still you know I felt myself having to to work a little harder to push it through it wasn't evacuating the mm-hmm. the chips the way that the way that it should because it was a down cut and it was pushing the chips up into the groove mm-hmm. um and I'm working my way through it, and the and the and the bits made for plywood, and my T track, which is a little under three quarter inch, um, so my T track doesn't quite fit after one pass. And I'm like, perfect. I'll just bump the fence, yeah. and I'll make one last pass and just nibble oh, away yeah. at it. I know where this is going. Uh-huh. And when I did that, I, it's not like I wasn't thinking. I was just dumb. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> I know one. I know one. If I move the fence the wrong direction, it's going to. It's going to. It's going to be like a jugs machine, and it's going to like grab my piece and it's going to shoot it across the room. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, so I think I think I need to move it closer to the bit, and then I'll get a cleaner cut, and I think it'll be okay. So I get there, and I bump the fence a little closer to the bit start pushing the board through and it's fine at first I get about halfway through and I'm standing at the end of the machine or, you know, to the right of the router table kind of pushing through like pushing straight. Uh-huh. And even though I've got a wall full of push, push sticks and paddles, I was just doing it this one time and I decided I didn't need those. So yep. pushing it by hand uh-huh. and I'm feeding it through and all of a sudden it goes and it, takes it and it flings the board away from me and uh-huh. all of my weight, all of my, all of my 
force is going towards a bit, pushing towards a bit. And my right hand went and sat right on top of that bit. <laughs> Three quarter inch. Did, did you hurt the bit? <laughs> you know what? The bit is fine. The bit will. Good. Well, at least, at least, day. at least we got that going for you. Yep. So, I thankfully, uh, praise the Lord. Like lots of things to be thankful for in this. One, it was just one finger that went into the bit, and yep. it just tapped it, and reflex pulled away. Um, nothing I yep. did. I think it's the human body, and uh, it it cut a pretty good size uh, groove into the. Into the pad of my pointer finger on my dominant hand. Yeah. Um, so thankfully, my wife is home and is a nurse and is calm in the presence of blood and gore, and was able to get me uh, packaged up well enough to get over to the hospital. Got to the hospital just fine. No line in the ER again. Lot to be thankful for here. And uh, they put four stitches in it to to get me all patched up. It's been about three weeks, and I've still got. Sits. So we're get we're getting closer. We're not there. We're not there. Let me yet. see. Let me see. No. Well, I want to see. Is, yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll send if, you. If, I'll send if, you a picture of it later, since this is an audio only podcast. Yeah. Am I <laughs> the, am I incorrect uh, in, in remembering that you do not like the sight of blood? I do not like the sight of blood. I did not look Especially at it until yours. after the. <laughs> yeah, I did not. I did not look at it until after the ER doc looked at it and made some sort of comment that led me to believe I wasn't going to lose a finger. So. Um, so what would, what to, what, so to, to make this useful and not just, you know, a story of blood and gore, a couple things that I did wrong that I would do differently. And also this was, I know, you know what I'm going to say here. It was my last cut of the night. So a couple things doesn't matter if it's your first cut of the day, last cut of the day, take your time and think about what could happen if you were to lose balance, always use the right tool for the job at hand, whether it's the right tool or the right router bit. Um, If you are not confident and there is a safety risk presented, get confident and don't just think that you can think your way through it, which is what I did. I actually stopped and thought about it and I was just wrong, which is dumb. (laughs) The answer was out there. Um, And I, I violated three of our 10 written safety rules at work in this as well. In that one of it at at purposeful design. One is rule number four, do not overreach, reaching to the point of possible imbalance. I was standing at the, on the right side of that router table, pushing straight into that bit. If I lost balance, which I did essentially when that piece shot away from me, um, my weight was going right into the, right into the spinning bit. So don't overreach. Make sure you're thinking about what's going to happen if it flies away. Rule number six, Understand pinch points and kickback dangers to avoid them. I yeah. knew that there was a danger. I just did not take the time to properly. You just ignored it. Yeah. I just said, well, I thought. No, nope, you ignored it. it. But that was <laughs> dumb because I do not know. <laughs> yeah. And then and then the one that's, you know, the most egregious uh, error in this is rule number eight. Uh, use safety devices, push sticks, paddles, etc. Mm-hmm. They were there. It would have been a completely di- I could have done all these other things wrong. And if I would have had my paddles, like no harm, no foul, I might need a new paddle at the end, but I wouldn't have, wouldn't have nearly lost a finger. And I was just lucky that it wasn't worse than what it was. So if anybody right. is interested in all 10 of the safety rules, uh, just drop us an inquiry and I'll shoot a PDF of them over to you uh, via our contact page on our website. Submit a question while you're at it too. Yes. So, there Good is my... There. There is my 
uh, safety public service announcement. Sorry, I know that's a little different than uh, the form we normally take, but I, I want to make sure that uh, others learn from from my own mistakes. So, so one one of the things I do at Purposeful Design is I I do help out with some of the safety training and also the the, the training of new uh, craftsmen that we get in the shop, and yeah. I basically have one safety actually two safety rules do you know what i always tell the guys Don't put your hand in a spinning blade or bit <laughs> that's rule number one do not stick your finger in the spinning blade rule yeah. number two is when you walk up to the tool you should be saying three words every time safety 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 yep yeah. and brian just did not listen and what what brian's describing is very common and it's very easy to do. Yep. I know what I'm doing. You know, you know what that is? That's called hubris. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm doing. I, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways because I'm better than the equipment. Yeah. And not necessarily, yep. Brian, that wasn't necessarily Brian's thought process, but breaking it down on paper, that yeah. is what it is. He knew he was using the wrong bit. A. Mm-hmm. Yes. That, continued, that is true. Continued that. to use the wrong bit. And then not only that, but did not use push sticks when he knew right. he should be using a push stick or a paddle. That's what they're mm-hmm. there for. Right. Yep. And putting the, the, the router bit fence the wrong way and creating a, a climb cut that caused the, the board to shoot out of his hand. So yep. a combination of all three of those things adds up to a hospital visit. And he is lucky he didn't do more damage to his finger. Yeah. 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 So, so in a similar situation, uh, Brian, uh, I had, uh, remember when I, I, I nicked my finger with a flush trim bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I think I showed it to you guys. Um, and it was the same situation where I've done flush cuts a million and one times. I don't need, why do I need any special holding thing? I got this under control. No, no little tiny quarter inch flush trim bits going to overpower what I can put onto this tool or onto this workpiece. And sure enough, you know, when you come into a tight radius corner and that bit is kind of, even though I left less than, you know, uh, an eighth of an inch of material there. Yeah. An eighth of an inch is half of the radius of that bit. Yeah. And so when you fully encompass into a tight radius like that, that bit into it's going to be a catch point and so sure enough it flips the piece finger gets the caught in into the bit and i got you know a little thing and and it's a hospital visit and i know better right and i have the crazy thing is is that i have everything that i need just like you to hold the tool properly but yet for some for whatever reason i know better than what i've been taught yeah right so well i'm happy i'm really happy you're fine and yeah, that, like it. you're good, you're good, and that, yeah. and that your wife's a nurse. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. The only problem with having a, a, a nurse for a wife, because I have a nurse for a wife also, is the complete lack of empathy you receive <laughs> whenever you get sick or you cut yourself. She's like, hey, okay. Yeah. What do, what do you want to do? Yeah. It's like, ah. Oh. Am I wrong in saying that, Brian? Sometimes, uh, sometimes, some, yeah, sometimes, 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 sometimes. There's very little sympathy for it. It's like, yeah, you, you, you shouldn't have done that. Uh, all right, so I'm going to take the last question here, and this comes from John. And John said, 
is I've been doing some veneering using a vacuum bag, most, mostly just panels for doors and box lids. Cool. When I join two pieces of veneer together at a seam, I'll use blue painter's tape to hold the seam together. My problem is when I get it out and start taking the tape off, I'll get some of the veneer fibers coming off with the tape. How can I prevent it from happening? Thanks, John. Well, John, I've got some, I've got a really easy answer for you. Don't use blue tape. <laughs> That's it. Don't use blue tape. I've done that before. I mm -hmm. still do it to this day. Um, it really depends on the type of wood. If I'm using a large uh, uh, a wood that has a lot of open grain to it, like walnut, or ash or something like that, I would not use blue painter's tape because mm -hmm. the pressure of that bag, you know, it's a couple thousand pounds per square inch, like 12,000 pounds per square inch sometimes. Mm -hmm. It'll embed that glue so deep in that open grain and pull yeah. the, the, the tape off, it'll pull off the fibers. They make veneer tape for this. Yes. Use veneer tape. It's mm -hmm. cheap, it's easy to use, um, with a with a closed grain wood like cherry, not so much. You're, you you can, you can be fine. I know people that use blue tape all the time and don't have a problem with it. Myself, I've had issues. So it might be the glue I'm using. It might be the tape. I don't know. But um, use veneer tape. Have you ever have, have you ever used blue tape? Hui, doing veneer. Yeah, yeah. In the in my most recent one, but I mean, we're talking about almost eighth inch thick veneer, right? It's still so going to pull fibers. I don't care. It's a hundred percent. It's going to pull fibers. And it did, and it, do, it did full pull fibers in the last project that I used, but I mean, I'm sanding it down anyway. Mm -hmm. And so I'm not as near, I wasn't as concerned, Yeah. but where it definitely becomes a concern is when you're using commercially commercial grade veneer and yeah. you're not, you don't have as much material to sand down per se that veneer tape. I have veneer tape. And I've used veneer tape and I use veneer tape more often with commercial veneer than I do with like, say the shops on thicker veneer. Uh, but yeah, that's, that, that is totally an issue. That is an issue, but I still use veneer, uh, blue painters tape in certain situations. Yeah. Um, at but, the end uh, of this, I've got a tip to get blue painters tape off. Okay. All right. All right. I'll wait, I'll, I'll wait for Brian to, have you, do you have anything you can add to this, Brian? Not, not really. I've, I've never used a vacuum bag. <laughs> yeah, but you've done veneer have, before. Vacuum bag. Yeah, yeah. Usually, though, I'm not, I'm not joining two pieces of it together. Usually, okay. I'm taking, you know, a five or six inch wide piece, you know, that was bought, you know, from Rockler, or came from veneer supplies, and putting it on a small panel. Um, I've not done okay. like large panel glue ups. Right. Yeah, I, I, I said I've, I've used. Regular veneer tape, I've used the peel and stick veneer tape, mm -hmm. and I've used blue tape. And I do use blue tape actually quite often. You have to use a heat gun to get it off. Uh, okay. You have to heat the glue up and, and use a, a scraper. Not like a scraper scraper, but like a... Like a paint scraper? Like a paint scraper, yeah. Something that isn't going to damage the wood. And, and you heat it up and it, it, it does come off. It, it's kind of a pain in the butt. Yeah. Um, veneer tape comes off much easier. But when you're dealing with 
you know, a lot of the veneer I use is an eighth to three sixteenths of an inch thick. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I get the kind of seam that I should be getting using veneer tape. Veneer tape. Yeah. So I'll use I'll use the blue painters tape. What um, is what is veneer tape made? I, I know you have to I mean obviously I've used it before. Uh, you have to wet it, but it's similar mm -hmm. to the uh the tape that uh like the brown packing tape. Isn't it similar to the brown packing tape? Yeah, it's uh, just paper. It's just it's just paper tape with a, an adhesive back on it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's all it is. And, and to remove it, you, you generally uh, wet it a little bit, right? Yeah. Just put some water on it, let it sit for a minute or two, and it peels right up. Yeah. And it's clean. Yeah. 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 It's very clean. Um, so. I said, when, I, when I'm doing 32nd or 42nd of an inch thick veneer, I typically will use veneer tape. Um, mm -hmm. But like I said, for the solid, more solid type veneer, I, I, I am, I'm bad. I use blue tape, but yeah. like I said, I heat it up first. Mm -hmm. So good tip, good tip. Yeah. Which reminds me, I need to get a heat gun. I keep using yeah. my wife's hair dryer for things. <laughs> <laughs> that must be one hell of a hair dryer using as a heat. Well, gun. well, I don't, I don't need that intensive heat, but I, I should get my own heat gun for the shop because yeah. Yeah. she's getting a little annoyed about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because I don't return it. So what do you got going on in the shop, Brian? I I have a client project that I'm working on. Uh, it's a 16-foot long wall, 9-foot tall, 9-foot uh, nine nine ceilings. And they've got bookcase stacks on the outside and then about an 8-foot long, uh, a little over 8-foot long run of center cabinets with a sliding, sliding barn door on front. I mean, it's pretty... Oh pretty standard or basic but it's yeah i think did I'm you did you draw that all up and i think i'm 11 sheets of plywood in and not quite not oh quite my goodness yeah, so did you draw that all up on in CAD on excel in excel oh yeah that's <laughs> the weirdest thing man i love it man it's incredibly I love it. effective you know what pay one license <laughs> this this <laughs> yeah. this is this is what accountancy does to people so <laughs> they use it for everything <laughs> You should see the curves I can draw in Excel. <laughs> oh, that's funny. What, oh, what, what do you got going on, Hui? Oh, man. Um, so uh, still working on that China cabinet, but I've got all construction done on it. But it's all in pieces, so I guess I didn't actually technically construct anything. Anyway, um, but all, all the machining is done on it, so all the coving and everything's all done. Uh, but I installed the... I fit, fitted and installed the hinges for the two doors. So I just pre-drilled everything just so that once I have everything assembled, I, you know, all I have to do is just screw everything in. And I use what's really nice is when you order through Horton Brasses, you order the hinges, they come with steel screws. So yeah. That you can, yeah, you can cut them. It's really nice. Horton is um, good it's stuff. Good stuff. It's expensive, man. Well, you know, you get what you pay for. You get what you pay for. Those are tight tolerance hinges, man. Yep. They they don't wiggle. Nope. Um, and then I installed the door knobs and ball catches. So each of the doors have two ball catches, one on the top and bottom. And so I installed that into the face frame, the mating ball catch, and then the ball catch itself into the doors. Um, now is the process and long, arduous process. And I want to ask you guys, 
what what you think about this. I've got to uh, I've got to apply a dye stain to the walnut just so that there's a lot of variance in color because this is all air dried walnut. Oh yeah. So would you sand first to 120, then apply dye, and then lightly sand at 180 just to because the grain the grain tends to raise a little bit, or would you dye everything and then just fit you know sand between the uh, through the grits to, to 180. What would you do and what do you think is going to, I just don't want to, I don't want to dull in the color by sanding afterwards. Dull in? Is that a word? Dull the color, whatever. Dull you know, it. past tense. I'm, I'm sorry. I, engineering, I whatever. So All right. <laughs> I was just wondering if that's a word. I never heard of it. No, it's not. Dull the color. So I, I would just myself, I'd sand it to know, I would sand it first, up mm-hmm. uh, up to maybe like one fifty. Okay. Um, apply the dye. Yeah. I would use uh, at the al- the denatured alcohol. Yeah. For it, it mm-hmm. won't raise the grain as much. But then just go through the regular standing standard uh, process after that. I would go. Okay. Then go one eighty and maybe two twenty. Maybe two twenty. Okay. Maybe two twenty. Um, yeah. And you'll be fine. Okay, fair, fair. You know, again, I just don't want to. Uh, y- y- you know the deal. Yeah. Like, w- once you c- you continue to sand after applying the dye, it's like, oh, well, now it's all kind of like flat, and not not very you know, I, vibrant. I used to sand quite a bit, way over 108. I just go 220, 300 sometimes, and it it most cases it just doesn't make sense to do that. Yeah, well, I, I, I 200. Or 220 is about as high as I'll go now. Yeah, yeah. This is all going to be shellac. No yeah. top coat of any type. It's all shellac. It's probably going to be and, about and six coats of shellac. What 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 type of wood is it? It's all walnut. It's all walnut. Yeah, that's right. Duh. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you'll be yeah. fine. Yeah, I don't see the. I don't see a need to have anything more than shellac on it. I mean, it's not going to be an everyday use type thing. It's just going to store stuff and just look pretty. That's it. So. Yeah. So I finally got, I'm actually going to be in the shop after I get off this podcast. I, I finished my wife's cabinets for the laundry room. Yeah. I had made them and she wanted them stained and I stained them. Okay. And then she said, oh, I don't like that color. I'm like, oh, "Oh, swell. But I mixed the stain in with the finish. So they were already finished. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. So I had it all down. Oh, no. Oh, no. no, no, no. What'd you do? She said, I said, well, you have two choices here. You can, you know, buy these commercially or we can paint them, mm-hmm. which is what we decided to do. So I ordered pigmented water-based lacquer and mm-hmm. it came and it was the wrong color. And I finally, yeah, got I, them, that. I, finally, I finally got the right stuff and I did it last week. Kudos to Target Coatings for correcting a mistake no hassles, no questions. Awesome. Um, I just sent them a, a picture of it, and they just said, okay. And two days later, I had the new finish. Um, so that was nice. Uh, but I'm getting ready. I'm going to put the, the the doors on them today. I've got the hinges and everything i gotta, I got to put on, and then I'm going to probably hang them today, maybe. Nice. Yeah. So that's it. All right. Awesome. I think that's going to do it for the show. 
And we'd like, like, we'd like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the Woodwork community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. I can be found at Guy Shop on YouTube and also Guy's Woodshop on most other social media platforms. And what about you, Hui? Uh, AlabamaWoodworker.com. All the links to my socials are there. I'm not on Instagram very much anymore. I mean, I, I have it, but uh, it's mostly, uh, yeah, it's actually just my website. Just yeah. go to my website. Right. So, Brian? You won't find me on the social medias, but um, I do have a couple projects posted on Sean's website, simplecove.com, uh, at Brian Schmidt. All right. Awesome. Really good. So I guess we'll uh, see you guys later. All right. Sounds good. See you guys. Cheers.